We're glad that you guys are here tonight, and um, this is where you start separating the sheep from the goats. You guys are in week three, so you're not bad. No, I'm kidding. That's, that's sorry. Sorry. I know. I'm sorry. It's been a long day. I'm a little punchy. I'm sleeping with a CPAP machine now, and it feels like a birdcage with a garden hose, if any of you guys know what that, that involves. So, um, but we are super glad that you guys are here, and... Um, uh, week three. And so we're going to be covering a lot of content tonight and doing a few different things. And so before we get started, let me, let me pray for us. And uh, you guys keep snacking or drinking or whatever after we, after we do that. So Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you that we get to just dive in and hear from you through your word. Help us to internalize that. Help us to be doers of the word. Help us to be wisdomful in how we respond to the poor. But first, we just want to hear your heart. And so just thank you for this time. We want to bring honor and glory to you tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, uh, we're going to do the Q, a little bit of Q&A tonight at the end, but we're going to do it differently. So if you see those note cards on your table, um, and by the way, let me introduce myself because I wasn't here last week. So I'm Jeff Ward. I get to uh, serve and work on the um, external focus team here at Watermark. So I've been on staff for about seven years, recovering lawyer. So uh, um, that's a whole other story. But the note cards tonight, um, what we're going to do with Q&A time is if you have a question uh, about some of what you've read, some of what you've heard, what you hear tonight, um, maybe something from the challenge, whatever, write it on the card. And so when it comes time to kind of have our table discussion, I'm going to come around and pick those up, and then I'll find a few themes, because what we typically see are themes to those questions. And so uh, we'll take some time tonight at the end, and I'll sort through those, and we'll figure out two or three kind of key questions that everybody seems to have, and we'll address those. Um, one quick one before I get started, um, somebody, we were, we were talking down here about you know, just, again, the, the man on the corner and kind of how to approach that. We did a brown bag session. I don't know if Rick mentioned that to you guys a while back, but we spent a whole hour talking about our approach to, that, to the guy on the corner. We get asked that a lot, and so that's accessible for download on our website, and we'll give you some more information about that. Um, but also, a quick thing that I do, when, and you, we're going to talk a lot tonight about relationship, but a quick thing that I do, if I can't take somebody, take a few minutes and grab coffee with somebody, uh, I've got a little packet that I make up, that I keep in my glove box. I keep about 10 of them in there, and it's just a little envelope. It's got a little note that I write. It's got a little watermark trifold. It's got a tract um, called either Connecting with God or um, Questions, kind of like a a Four Laws booklet, and then um, a McDonald's gift card, like a $5 McDonald's gift card. You know, and it's a quick way to make a connection with somebody and provide opportunities to connect with them in the future. So, um, and other people have done it different ways. We had a, uh, a whole community group of, of uh, single gals um, who did granola bars and kind of bottled water and some other stuff. And so funny, funny quick story, I was down in South Dallas one day and there was a guy under the bridge and I pulled up and I was talking to him and I rolled down my window and uh, he goes, are you about to give me a granola bar? And I go... Why do you ask? And he said, are you from Watermark? And, and, uh, and anyway, I said, well, no, I'm not going to give you a granola bar. Yes, I'm from Watermark, but we had a great conversation. But he said, you know, he goes, I really like the, um, the, the granola bars that the ladies have, have given me, but my problem is, is I don't have any teeth. And so he, he didn't have any teeth. But uh, anyway, we had a great conversation, and he got a McDonald's gift card out of it, and we, had a, we built some relationships. So anyway, that's an aside, but just know that that resource is out there. And we're going to talk again about some of the key principles that we talked in there about tonight. So the questions and answers. Um, before we get started, too, if anybody has just one or two sort of key insights from 
either what you read this week or the challenge that you did. We'll hold off on some of the, that homework piece because you're going to be doing a, rev, a revised version of that tonight after you hear some of these principles. But is there anything that anybody would just like to share about what they learned, what they uh, felt, what God taught them through any of the reading? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so you drank water this week. Yeah. All right. Just one day. Well, beyond just the taste of the water, did you anything hit you? You know, I tell you what, uh in Africa, they they talk about water being life. And um, you know, in uh Watermark, we'll talk more about this in probably next week when Benson kind of talks to you about some of the practical things that we're part of, but we've drilled a number of wells in partnership with indigenous um, local churches in Africa, and I've actually been to the, some of the places where they've, you know, where they collect water. Um, in fact, on an obscure webpage, there's a thing called Why Water, and it talked about why we're involved in water, and it's a great video clip and an interview, and you can actually see some of our wells and where we've put them in, and um, they look very much identical to the well pump that you see down in the baptism pond downstairs, which was sort of meant to help remind us of the challenges of some of these communities. But we got to talk to folks who just the simple act of, of bringing a water well had allowed people to move in from these IDP camps and begin to cultivate, um, you know, the communities where they once lived. And so families were returning. In fact, we got delayed, as, as you often do in Africa, and we were three hours late getting to this watering hole and this um, well and yet the entire community had been standing there for three hours just to welcome us and talk about what water had meant to them and just how God was gracious in that. And so it was really, really fun. So anyway, I'm glad that you, you did the water challenge this week and um, were challenged by that. Anything else? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, thank From you. the reading, I appreciate you picking out that book because now I feel more guilty than I normally do. Uh-oh. Um, I've been in church a while, mm-hmm. um, and I don't think I've ever been with a church that's done it right after reading that fourth chapter where it talks about the relief and the process. So I look forward to learning how to do it mm-hmm. right versus mm-hmm. having been a part of doing it wrong. Well, you're, you're still not part of a church that's doing everything right, but we're definitely learning and growing in that area. So, um, But thank you for that. We're going to talk a little bit about that tonight, I mean, some of the key principles. I know Rick touched on some of those last week, and so we're going to do that. Um, tonight and um, talk about what we're learning in this process. And so, one more, anything? Oh, yeah, go ahead. I like, uh, when I was reading, <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> when, um, when I was reading in chapter four and it was talking about basically keeping the dignity, you know, they, they need to keep their dignity. I was raised extremely poor. I thought people that had lights all the time were rich, you know, because I would come home and they'd be gone and they would be there. And, um, but what I found interesting was how much of an enabler I am with people that don't have. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that until I started, you know, really reading that. And then the part that really got me was the part where you, um, instead of waiting on them, let them participate in this. Let mm-hmm. them help out. Let them clean. Let them do something. Because I think without us even knowing it, we treat them completely different than we would each other, you right. know? And mm, so that was point. a big thing that got to me during that whole, the whole chapter. I was just like, man, I'm such an enabler, bad yeah. person. Yeah. Because, right, we're all, <laughs> we're all image bearers of God, right? And so there is this inherent 
dignity, value, worth. It's some of the stuff I mentioned as we previewed the class. And we're going to talk more about that tonight. But, man, we always want to be really, really careful that in our service, as well-intentioned as it is, that we're always offering one that we're preserving that dignity and that value and that we're looking people in the eyes and we're reminding them of who they are. Uh, and then that we're always looking for a value exchange so that folks don't feel like they are helpless and um, without value and worth. So I should let you guys teach this class tonight because y'all are, y'all are on to something here. All right, so let's do this. Let's buckle up and we're going to go fast. And um, I hope you brought your Bibles. You brought your Bibles, right? Or you got them on your phones? Because we're going to, um, if nothing else, I want you guys to leave here hearing from God and hearing from his word and his heart for the poor. Uh, and, um, and so you're not hearing wisdom of man, but you're just hearing, again, what the Lord would speak to you. And so I want to address a couple of questions right up front that we get. One is, hey, Jeff, why is the church really even involved in poverty alleviation efforts? I mean, really, the poor will always be with us, right? We hear that. Um, thrown out a lot, and um, and Jesus did say it, you know, and he said it in the Gospels, as he, but he also said it in the context of a particular situation. Remember where the the alabaster jar is broken, and um, there, and she's anointing Jesus' feet, and the disciples are sort of grumbling, and Judas particularly is saying, "Hey, that jar should have been sold. I mean, that was an expensive, valuable jar, and that money given to the poor." And so Jesus responds, "Who is about to go to the cross?" And he says, hey, the poor will always be with you, but, but what she's doing is the right thing. Um, but So there's a context there that he, Jesus is not making a broad prophetic statement about, hey, the poor are always going to be with you, so don't worry about poverty allevi- alleviation. Because he, we know that the lost are always with us, but he never said stop evangelizing. You know? And so there's a situation that's going on. But here's what I want you to do. If you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy 15, because Jesus quotes from this passage there when he says this, and he's quoting from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 15, 11, which says, For there will never cease to be poor um, among you in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. And so notice how that statement about the poor always being with you is followed by a challenge to be open-handed and generous um, to the poor. And, but here's the important thing. If you back up just a few verses before that, Deuteronomy 15, 4. So this is just a few verses is before, and it says, There should be no, no poor among you. For the Lord your God will greatly bless you in the land he is giving you as a special possession. You will receive this blessing if you are careful to obey all the commands of the Lord your God that I am giving you today. And so he's saying there's no reason for poverty to exist if you follow my commands. And gang, you need to know, like, poverty is not God's plan. That we represent a king and a kingdom where poverty is absent. And so uh, he has laid out some, his heart for the poor. We're going to talk about that. He's laid out what we do in response to the poor so that there would not be poverty. I mean, Jesus even prayed, you know, uh, on earth as it is in heaven. And so we have got this redemptive role that we'll talk about in just a, just a minute. But poverty is not a lost cause it's an incredible opportunity for the church to be the church, for the body of Christ um, to really uh, make a difference spiritually and materially. Um, this is the other question I get a lot. Like, hey, isn't poverty really the government's job? Right? I mean, they have all these social programs. They've got all these people thinking about it. Really, why, why should the church, you know, be involved in it? And so that's where chapter one of When Helping Hurts, I hope, 
was helpful in explaining sort of the role, why Jesus came. And look, the short answer is, guys, as we've talked about, poverty is broken relationships. Self, God, creation, community, others. And so what better institution to handle both the relational issues there and the community issues, the systemic issues, than the church? And we, we don't have time, but, but Ephesians 3, 10 through 11 is a great place to go. Ephesians 4, where Christ talks about the role of the church. He is head of the body. And there is just no other institution, whether government, business, uh, nonprofit, where Scripture says the gates of hell will not prevail against it except the church. And that's you, not this building, not Watermark. You guys being the hands and feet of Christ as you encounter folks who are um, potentially materially poor, but also spiritually poor. Um, And so we're going to talk a little bit more about that tonight. But there is a redemptive and restorative role, and that's why the church is perfect to play this role. And honestly, the church sort of stepped out of this uh, probably decades, you know, two, three decades ago, and really has left it up to uh, folks to make it a political conversation instead of a spiritual and physical and material one. So um, that's why. And I think I said this, the nice part is the church is uniquely situated to address both the heart issues at play and the community issues and the systemic issues. And we have all the tools. You know, I often say, and when I'm talking to people about these issues, you know, it's like looking at a jigsaw puzzle on a table. You know, you'll hear about issues. Today I was talking to a guy about some housing challenges in Dallas, and it's just like every time I think about poverty alleviation and some of the things we're talking about in this class, I think it's like a jigsaw puzzle on the table. All the pieces are there. Like, in this room and in God's body, if we use our gifts, you know, as 1 Peter 4 says, as Ephesians 2.10 talks about, to advance the kingdom, and that means engage the people that God puts in your path, um, relationally, in a discipleship context, um, gang, um, we will um, make, do amazing things in the name of Christ, by His Spirit, working through His people. Um, there are 2,000 verses about God's heart for the poor. And just by the volume and quantity alone should tell you something. Uh, We can see that it's important to God. And there's a few places, in fact, there's even this poverty and justice Bible, I I meant to bring it down and I forgot, where they've actually gone through and they've highlighted all those passages, you know, for you. And it's really fascinating just to flip through there and just kind of read through and get the themes. And we're going to do some of that tonight. But, you know, um, in various parts of Scripture... There are places where God speaks very directly and very clearly. And, um, you know, sometimes he speaks in parables, and sometimes he speaks in metaphors, and sometimes he speaks through, you know, um, passages that can, be, can take some time to interpret. But here's the thing. I've got a son who is um, ADHD, and so he's now, man, about six feet tall and 200 pounds, so I kind of look up to him now. But when he was little, um, I would tell him things like, hey, I want you to brush your teeth, put on your pajamas, and go to bed. And if he hit one of those halfway, it was a win, you know? And so it was just the way his mind is wired, you know, he would get distracted. And um, my wife says he takes after me in that respect. But anyway, there were times when I really, it was really important what I had to say to him. And so what I would do is I would kind of get down like this, and I'd look him in the eyes, and I'd say, Hayden, this is what I need you to do. This is what I see happening. And this is, you know, these are the things. And so there's a few places in scripture where I feel like God does that. He speaks really directly to his people. He's seeing something and he's wanting to address it. And so what I'd like for you guys to do is, is you got Isaiah 58, right? Printed out right there for you. We're going to take a minute. 
Now I want to read this passage with you. I know it was, some of it was part of your homework that Rick gave you. Um, and it's important. And it really encapsulates many of the themes uh, that we're talking about tonight. Let me advance the slide. But uh, Isaiah 58. Here we go. We're going to move quick. Shout with the voice of a trumpet blast. Shout aloud. Don't be timid. Tell my people Israel of their sins, yet they act so pious. They come to the temple every day. They come to church uh, every day, and they seem delighted to learn all about me. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the laws of its God. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. We have failed, um, sorry, we have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We've been very hard on ourselves, and you don't even notice it. I will tell you why. I respond, it's because you are fasting to please yourselves. Um, Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. Do you see the systemic issues here? You're oppressing your workers. What good is fasting while you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and cover yourselves with ashes. Is this what you call fasting? Do you really think that this will please the Lord? No. This is the kind of fasting I want. This is God looking into the eyes of his people. He's telling them what he wants them to do. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Systemic. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Again, these are big development issues. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry. Now we're talking about immediate physical needs. And give shelter to the homeless. Those words actually mean bring them into your house. Give clothes to those who need them. And do not hide from relatives who need your help. Here come the promises. Then your salvation will come like the dawn. And your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward. And the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then when you call, the Lord will answer. Yes, I am here. He will quickly reply. You know, other passages of scripture, it's God talking to man. And man saying, hey, here I am. Here, it's God saying, hey, you're going to call me, and I'm going to say, here I am. When you worship me in this way, remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumors. Feed the hungry and help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness, and the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. Remember Christ saying, hey, shine your light before men so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you are dry and restoring your strength. Are you dry? Do you need to be restored? You will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. Some of you will rebuild the deserted ruins of your cities. Then you will be known as a rebuilder of walls and a restorer of homes. We're just doing like a study around a theology of the city. This is a terrific passage of how God views the church in the city. Um, He talks about the Sabbath, and then he gets down to the end here, verse 14. It says, Then the Lord will be your delight. I will give you great honor and satisfy you with the inheritance I promised to your ancestor Jacob. I, the Lord, have spoken. And so he's saying, gang, it's not what you're doing. It's what you're not doing. You're going to church, you're fasting, and you're doing these things, but yet, you know, there's still oppression happening with your workers. They're still quarreling and fighting. There's still all of these things and all this work to be done so that the nations will look to you and, be, and see me and be glorified. These folks think going to church is enough, but God wants them to be the church, and he makes them some tremendous promises. Okay, we're going we're gonna to go through some of these passages um, 
I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of time on these because here's part of your homework. I want you to take these verses. I particularly put them in these slides for you to burn some quiet time this week. Uh, Do the journey and then also uh, go through these verses because they're rich and spend some time on them hearing from the Lord. Okay, Psalm 9-9. I'm just going to read through these. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. He who opposes the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward him for what he has done. But you, O God, do see trouble and grief. You consider, it to, you consider it to take it in hand. The victim commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Because of the oppression of the weak and the groaning of the needy, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy and his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall. Here's the themes. We could keep going. Number one, God has a heart for the poor. You heard it in Isaiah. You hear it all through Scripture. He aligns himself with the voiceless. Number two, God commands his people to care for the poor. We're going to talk about that next. What does that mean? Thirdly, God blesses those who intercede and intervene uh, on behalf of the poor. God brings judgment on those who oppress the poor. And lastly, a heart for the poor is one indication of our salvation and our sanctification. How we view those folks, how we love those folks, how we make our resources available for those folks speaks volumes about what we believe about God and who we are in Him. Now, how does Scripture inform our response? How should we think about this? Again, we, go, we start with God's Word. I'm going to read through these. Here we go, Leviticus. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. I wish I could spend half an hour um, just talking through some of the ways that God um, had protected against generational poverty that we talked about in week one. Gleaning laws were one of those. The year of Jubilee where debts were forgiven, slaves were released. There were all kinds of ways that God gave his people to combat generational poverty. And this is one. And when, when you made that comment about dignity and value, notice here what God says to the landowner. He doesn't say, hey, this land is yours. Um, reap it to its fullest. What he does is he's reminding these landowners, hey, this is the land I gave you. So I'm telling you how to, how to reap and how to harvest it. And, and trust me. Don't harvest 100% of it, but leave the edges for the poor. He doesn't say reap 100%, sell it, then give a percentage to the government so that they can take care of the poor, right? And he says leave the edges because he's offering an opportunity, a value exchange for the poor to come and, and fend for themselves and to glean and pick up what they need for their families. And so there's this whole, again, dignity and value Um, that's happening here and God recognizing that. Okay, if there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your poor brother. Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Wash And make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. 
seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of his oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the alien, the fatherless, or the widow. Those were folks in biblical times who not only didn't have a voice, but they, were, they, had, they had no home in many, in many cases. Read the book of Ruth. Um, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. Uh, Matthew 5, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Okay, now we're moving in more into the realm of the New Testament. And so this is different. Christ has come. There is grace personified. And so this is scripture telling us now as recipients of God's grace how we ought to think we're moving out away from the gleaning laws and some of the statutes and the rules, and we're moving to a grace-based response. This is important. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Get that. He was rich. We were poor. He became poor so that, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And this is Paul very carefully laying out an apologetic of why the death of Christ is not just an event, but it's a model for us as we encounter those who are far from him. Philippians 2, 5, and 8. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So remember, he humbles himself just to leave heaven and come to earth. And he humbles himself again. And he humbles himself again all the way to the cross. He humbles himself for us. Because he recognized that he was the means by which we could be reconciled to the Father and ultimately be even adopted as sons of God with an inheritance. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. And if then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you too ought to wash one another's feet. So Tim Keller is a pastor um, up in New York City. He's written some books, really great books. Um, and in preparing, preparing for this, I ran across this little story that he told of this woman in his congregation who really began for the first time to understand God's grace. And um, she made this comment to him like, uh, you know, uh, it was um, grace is scary in a good way. And so, of course, Tim Keller took the bait. And he says, you know, why do you say that? And she says, well, it's two-edged, you know, because, let me make sure I get this right. On the one hand, it cuts away fear. So God loves us despite our brokenness and sent his son for us. And on the other hand, because he did that, because he paid the price, um, he owns us. And there's nothing too, you know, uh, significant that he can't ask of me as his, you know, possession. She was bought with a price. And I loved this quote um, which just says, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it is really true that I am a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there is nothing that he cannot ask of me. And so, gang, we reviewed, I don't know, 20 passages or 30 passages, not all 2,000 by any stroke, we now understand, we know what God's heart is for the poor. And we know that God asks us to show grace to the poor, materially poor, spiritually poor, 
um, and, and, and with Christ as an example and a model. What we need now is not information, but transformation, right? Um, grace and truth, mercy and justice. And it would almost be like it, we, we sort of take these, pa- I did for, for years. I kind of took these passages and I spiritualized them or I made it about spiritual poverty, and, and some of them are. But there are some very clear passages on how we are to approach the materially poor as believers in Christ. And so we do these mental gymnastics. And so it's a little bit like if I brought my kids together tonight when I got home and I said, all right, boys, I want you to go and clean your room, your, your rooms. And, uh, and then I called them back 15 minutes later. And I said, hey, did you clean your rooms? And what if they said, well, um, we really prayed about it. Uh... We, we were thinking about putting together a plan, you know, to maybe clean our rooms. We, we needed to really process that with our community. Like, hey, what did you really mean when you said clean? Like, really clean? Like, what did you mean when you said your room? Like, you mean our rooms, your brother's room? Like, I mean, I mean right? That's not, that's not obedience, you know? And I think we do that with these scriptures in so many ways. We're like, what did you really mean when he said, you know, what he said? And our job really, guys, is to respond in grace, not guilt, uh, and to do what he's asked us to do. Now, we're, we're going to do that imperfectly. We're not going to be the church that does everything right. And you won't always respond, uh, you know, 100% correctly to the, to the need that's before you. I certainly haven't. And so, but we're called to begin, right, and to do something about it. And, um, and so we don't want disobedience to masquerade as spirituality. And our motive matters. It's the grace response, not guilt. Um, we're grace-based, but we are wise about how we respond, and this is important. Um, and we're going to now segue into how we respond and when our helping hurts. And we're going to move into some of these principles that we've learned again. And so um, grace and truth is our approach, and we tend to, to swing to one side of the spectrum or the other. You know, either it's all grace and all mercy, and, man, we're just dumping resources, or we move to truth and we move to uh, justice, and we're very harsh, and it's all about personal responsibility. And, and it's neither either or. It's both. And, I mean, if you remember Jesus' example, anytime he encountered spiritual need, I mean, physical need, he met physical need, but he also met the spiritual need, which was, which was key. I put these pictures up here because growing up, uh, outreach and our response to the, to the materially poor was what I affectionately call turkey dinners and toy baskets. I think maybe, maybe Rick mentioned that last week um, to you guys. But this is what we would do. We would find needy families, you know, at Thanksgiving, and we would take dinner, turkey dinners. We'd either take them frozen dinners or we'd do a turkey dinner thing, you know. And at, in the holidays at Christmas time, we would do toy baskets, and we would, you know, take, you know, these resources to these needy families. And, um, you know, we typically didn't have a relationship with these families before, and we didn't have one with them after. It was purely a one-way give you know, it was sort of a, a resource dump. Uh, and we really um, now have realized that we've got to move beyond this, that it's about relationship. But that was kind of the system um, that I uh, grew up with. And again, well-intentioned, but as we're going to talk about, well-intentioned can, always be, can, can even be the fastest way to destroy somebody's dignity, value, and worth. And we want to work on these broken systems. And it's interesting because especially this time of year, we, get a lot of, we do a lot of criticizing of the federal government for programs that bring entitlement, dependency, that don't empower, that don't uh, bring capacity. And yet we do the very same thing as the church sometimes in the way that we respond. 
in doing um, some of the things that we do. So we'll talk about some of that tonight. You're going to learn a lot more about that um, next week too. But there's a guy named Bob Lupton. I don't know if any of you guys have heard about Bob Lupton. He's been doing urban ministry for 30 plus years in uh, some of the roughest parts of Atlanta. He wrote a book called Toxic Charity. And so if you, if you, if you have capacity to read another book, Toxic Charity is really phenomenal. And it synthesizes a whole bunch of what he's learned into one short book. Um, but we got an opportunity a couple of years ago to go to Atlanta and spend some time with Bob and see what he's doing in the neighborhoods and um, with the uh, um, economic development and some of the things that he's doing. And he made some comments, and I wrote them down because they were so key. And he was talking about this, this kind of um, outreach, and he said, you know, I used to do this. He goes, this is how we used to serve the poor in our communities. And he said, but now, now that I've moved into the community and I'm sitting in these living rooms with families as churches, well-meaning, come in with these resource dumps, he said, this is what happens. He said, the mom sticks it out because of the kids. The dad splits, like he's out the back door. And he said, the reason is, is because the church, again, as well-meaning and as good-hearted as we are, we come in and we basically emasculate this dad in front of his family. And we say, hey, you can't provide these things for your family, and so we're going to come in and provide it. And so the dad's bolt. And so what a, 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 a again, well-intentioned but misdirected. And so we want to bring biblical Wisdom, Psalm 41.1 says, Blessed is the man who considers the poor. That word considers is the word that he uses when he talks about consider the lilies, consider the sparrows. Take all that acumen that you guys use during the week in your professions and apply it to the poor. I was with, I was with some business guys um, last week, and we were talking about how they corporately— I, I said this to my friend. I said, I said uh, Matt, if you had $100,000 of corporate money that you were going to invest in a business venture, what would you do? He goes, oh, man, we, man, we would— we would, turn that, we would turn that opportunity upside down and over. We'd look at it every, every possible way. We'd look for what the return of investment is. What was the impact? What will be the impact of that in terms of business growth and development and all those sorts of things? And I said, now, Matt, if you were going to take that $100,000 and you were going to give it charitably, philanthropically, what would you do? And he kind of looked at me with like a little bit of the deer in the headlights. And he says, well, you know, we'd, we'd look for a good organization and we'd, you know, we'd write him a check. And I'd be like, but why? You know, like... We're called as believers to put all of our mental faculties into our walk with the Lord, our love for the Lord, our love for people, um, our discipleship, and yet we sometimes fail to apply that same rigor to how we address the materially poor. And so we're going to, again, hit some of these. If I get, get off my soapbox, we'll talk about some of these things. But here's the other thing that he said, and this was really interesting. He said, charity sometimes can mean to people one-way giving, and one-way giving uh, is, um, is destructive to people. He said charity can be the fastest way to destroying people. people. And what he was meaning was when we paternalize, and I hope that's a word y'all <clears throat> talked about last week, when we paternalize, when we do for people what they have the capacity to do for themselves, we're actually not giving, we're taking. Right? We're taking dignity, we're taking value, we're taking worth. Uh, and, um, and even when I came on staff here, some of the things that we were doing, again, well-intentioned, were... Uh, paternalistic, and, uh, and we still fight that urge. You know why? Because it's easy, and it's, it's easy to measure activity and not impact. It's easy to go, hey, we fed 300 people, homeless people, instead of going, how many lives did we really impact? So again, we'll talk more about that next week. All done with a great heart, but we can actually hurt as we help. Here's the three phases of recovery. These are the when helping hurts principles that I, I hope that you read. The first step in working with materially poor is discerning 
what are we doing? Like, what's the situation call for? What should be the intervention? Does it call for relief, rehabilitation, or development? And let me explain this to you really briefly. Um, relief is stopping the bleeding. So it's providing urgent uh, needs, food, shelter, clothing, uh, medical care. When the earthquake happened in Haiti a few years ago, we were there. We were bringing food, clothing, shelter. Uh, we took a medical team down. We were doing medical work. Um, and because it was in the aftermath of, a, of a either, it could be either a man-made or, a, in that case, a natural disaster, and you're providing, you're stopping the bleed, right? And relationally, as we talk about relationship, we're doing for people in that situation because there's chaos and panic, right? And so the church is stepping in. Rehabilitation, efforts to restore people back to their pre-crisis state. So once the relief phase is through, you start this rehabilitation process. And so we start working with the Haitians in terms of, of um, rebuilding schools and rebuilding their homes and shelters. And relationally, it starts to be we're working with people as they begin to restore their communities uh, and, tr- and tr- transitions from doing for to doing with in a shared process. Does that make sense? Okay. Then we move into this third phase of development. And development is long-term. We start working um, with people as opposed to for. And the primary relational dynamic is that we're walking with the materially poor over time uh, um, rather than doing stuff for them. And one of the biggest mistakes we can make personally, individually, as you encounter somebody on the street or a family member or whatever in need, or as the church, is we can fail to assess you know, which phase of recovery we should be dealing with. Um, because sometimes we like the quick solution. We like the easy fix. And it's easy to hand somebody a 10 spot. But again, it's the, it could be the fastest way to, to causing destruction. Um, we all can also fall into this trap of seeing problems and addressing the symptoms and not peeling back the onion and looking at this, you know, what, what really the core issue is. And I'll say this. Um, um, relief is very important, very necessary in third world countries. It's less important, less essential here in the United States, unless it's Katrina or a man-made disaster or something along those lines. Most of the issues that we're talking about here in Dallas are chronic problems or, problem or challenges that have happened over time. And so we look for um, development-type solutions, and it takes, a, it takes a long time of walking with somebody in a relationship. It can be messy because you're stepping into the lives of people. You're not just handing them a 10 spot. And so development is probably... Um, what you guys will encounter the most of around here, what we encounter the most of. Okay, here's a quote. I love this quote, Bob Lupton again. Um, a crisis requires emergency intervention. In fact, I actually had this taped up on my desk for a long time so I could really learn and understand this principle. A crisis requires emergency intervention. A chronic problem requires development. Address a crisis need with a crisis intervention and lives are saved. Address a chronic need with a crisis intervention, and people are harmed. Do you understand that? The key to effective service is accurately matching the need with the appropriate intervention. If you're providing food and shelter, you know, in a situation where you've got a chronic um, uh, situation, um, you're not helping. You're hurting. Um, next week, we're going to hear more about that. There are three words and concepts that drive the how of kind of how Watermark views outreach. And here they are. Development, we just talked about paternalism, which we're about to talk about, and relationship. Development, again, is about empowering people to help themselves. Um, um, and here, here's the thing that I would add to this quote before you turn the page. Um, at, uh, what I would add to the bottom of this is, and you can't discern 
appropriate intervention without relationship. That's what drives all of this. And this is your challenge. And that's what Jesus did. So let's talk about relationship discipleship. Wait, before we do that, though, let me just ask you this, because you guys know this intuitively. Raise your hands if you've ever been asked for money. Before you do that, let's just, let's just use context of family members or friends. Anybody been asked for money? I have. How many of you guys gave them money? How many of you guys, in hindsight, wish that you wouldn't have? Okay. So you know, so there are times when, when actually meeting that crisis need through material resources is important and necessary. So don't hear me say that. But I know in my own life, in hindsight, man, if I had sat down and taken the time to go, hey, let's figure out what got you here. And let's figure out, you know, um, how to get from A to B. Um, how much better would that have been? How much more loving would that have been, right? Scripture says, let all you do be done in love. And love doesn't always mean meeting that immediate need or what they're requesting, but it means having that relationship, having those conversations and digging into what's going on. Um, and I'll tell, you, I'll tell you one other quick, quick thing. I met a guy, um, his name is Juan. I think I'm already over time. Um, I met uh, Juan, and um, he was living in a, uh, a warehouse on Harry Hines. And um, he had gotten to Watermark because he would roll out of his um, sleeping bag in this thing, in, in this warehouse, um, and he would um, make his way to the bridge. He would shower, and then he would spend his day looking for work. And uh, he, he, a, a lady at the bridge, she was volunteering, told him about Watermark. So he came to Watermark. He filled out the first impression, and, uh, and I got assigned one. And so I called him, and I talked to him, and, he, and met him down at the McDonald's down by the bus station. And I said, Juan, I said, we have all these great ministry partners. We have Union Gospel Mission, and, you know, there's all these places. Why are you living in this in this warehouse environment. And I actually went to the warehouse to see, see where he was living. And he said, man, he goes, because I don't want free food and free clothes. I want a job. I want a shot. You know, he had come out of, out of jail. And he didn't have that safety net. But, but he knew intuitively as an image bearer of God, and he'd come to Christ in, in jail. And he said, man, I know how to make a lot of money fast on the streets, but I also know that's not who I am. I want to be a contributor. I don't want to be a consumer. Help me. I'll work for free for a week. You know, he said, I can get the job. He goes, but then they do that background check, and I lose the job before I even get there. And he said, you know, help me. And what he was doing was just espousing a Genesis 2-2 theology of work, right? We, were, we have value. We have meaning, and we're supposed to apply that in a way that helps our community thrive and flourish. And so, you know, the folks that we serve, if you walk through the kitchen at Unicospel, Unicospel Mission or, or, you know, some of our ministry partners, those folks— are looking, most of them, some, you know, through personal life choices or they're dealing with mental illness or whatever, may not espouse that or articulate that, but most people really don't want a handout. They want a hand up. They want a shot. And so that's where, again, the church has a unique opportunity to um, step into that situation. It's all about relationship and discipleship. So here's what else I'd say real quick before we change that slide. So we know, I mean, you've been around Watermark for a while, we know that transformation happens in the context of relationship. And when you see poverty, it's always a symptom of something deeper. And so here's a few. Nihilism. There's a big word, but it just means a loss of hope. You can't see that future. And so for, uh, so, um, there's, for example, um, I, I mentor a kid in West Dallas. We mentor 200-plus kids in West Dallas. And one of the things we run into all the time is, man, why study so hard? to achieve and excel academically. There's no job for me here. 
You know, like, what's the purpose? You know, it's just that attitude of going, man, I don't know. Like, what's it, what's it all for? And you can't solve that by ladling soup into that kid's bowl or dumping resources on it. Or there's this predator sort of um, prey mentality. And so if I get something good, it's going to get stolen. That happened to Jamichael, my mentee. I mean, every time he gets a phone, he gets mugged. And his phone gets stolen, you know, and I was just talking to him on Sunday. You know, he has a new phone. I'm like, keep it quiet, you know. But there's this attitude of, man, if I get something good, somebody's going to steal it from me. And so you don't solve those problems by handing somebody more resources and throwing stuff at it. You solve it by drawing them into a relationship with Christ and telling them about the hope that is in you and the hope that they have in the Lord as image bearers of God and, and that he loves them, that he cares about them, and that there's a path, not just a prayer, but a path, you know, forward, um, Anyway, uh, on the community side, again, you know this. It's all about relationships and discipling. Discipling our people as we serve so that we can check our motives and discipling the folks that we're serving. Um, even this job creation program that we launched as a result of talking with guys like Juan or the 53 ladies in the faith-based dorm at Dawson who had been you know, prostituting and um, dealing drugs, and they said, we have come to Christ. They looked me in the eyes. They said, we have come to Christ. We are a new creation. When we get out of here... One, will, be, will we be welcome at your church? And two, can you help us with jobs? Because again, we know how to make money on the street. We know that's not who we are. Can you help us? And so we have a job creation program. We have careers in motion for folks like us. We also have faith at work for folks who are struggling, who have barriers to traditional employment and who um, need, again, in a discipleship context. Do you know how easy it'd be to throw up an electronic bulletin board and slot people in, find out from all the employers at Watermark what the openings are? And just slot people. But we know that, again, that resource dump, a job, is not going to change a heart. But as we disciple people, or they're in a discipleship relationship with believers in Christ, there's that transformation that happens that will enable them to keep that job. And that will enable them to use those resources that God's given them to bless others. And so there's this whole thing, when we do it right, um, that happens. And yeah, go ahead. Hold that. I'll tell you at the end. Um, in our Q&A time. If, if, I don't, if I don't remember, I'll tell you then. Remind me then. Okay, lastly, paternalism. I need to roll. Um, this is a big word. I know Rick talked to you guys about it last week. It's worth understanding, and it's worth always asking yourself, is this paternalistic, what I'm being asked to do? It's doing for people what they have the capacity to do for themselves, and not just giving people the wrong things, but creating dependency uh, and, and damaging the relationship. Do you know that paternalism is really the opposite of relationship? Because relationship is stepping in and asking the hard questions and moving beyond the one-way give and finding out what's going on so that you can properly intervene. Paternalism is just simply doing something for somebody, handing them something. It's the easy, cheap way out. But again, it does um, damage. Important to see this. When all we do is give, we are actually taking. I said that earlier. Um, and these are the ways that we do this. Resource paternalism. We give people resources they don't truly need and or could acquire on their own. Spiritual paternalism. Taking spiritual leadership away from the materially poor, assuming we have more to offer than they do. This is why we partner with local indigenous churches. You know, there is a work of God happening in West Dallas. We don't need to take it to them. It's happening. We just need to figure out what that work is and then get behind it and support it and and align ourselves with it. So don't take from them you know, the spiritual things that God's doing. Knowledge paternalism, assuming we have all the best ideas about how to do things. I was down at the Beloved Ministry, which is our ladies' ministry in South Dallas. You know, when they were describing this to me, they go, this is the white man with the business plan. Like, you know, right? 
I mean, like, they're like, the guys come in, and they, you know, in their shiny shoes, and they've got their business plan for how they're going to, you know, lift our, our community out of poverty. And sometimes, I mean, many times there's good ideas there, but they do, we don't do it in a listening way that acknowledges the assets that are already available in that community. We build on what, again, God is already doing. Um, labor paternalism, we do work for the materially poor that they could do for themselves. Um, when we work on houses, when we paint walls, um, the things that we do even in Haiti and in African places, we do that with the community, not for the community. We want them to have a stake, and it's their community. Um, managerial paternalism, we take ownership of change away from the poor, insisting that they follow are better, more efficient ways of doing things. Again, we're going to talk about all of that, more those principles and practice next week. Um, but before I s- close, I wanted to show you this video. So this is my friend Marvin Iglehart uh, and my other friend Andy Kerner, who's here at Watermark. Um, it's um, fairly short, but it's gonna, we're going to hit a lot of key topics with it. My name is Marvin Igerhart. I've been going to Watermark since last June. My name is Andy Kerner. I have been um, coming to Watermark since the beginning. I came to know the Lord when I was 12 years old. The environment I grew up in was, was one of uh, alcoholism and it was drug dealing and, um, and even murder. And what I wanted to do was to rise above that. I had uh, graduated top of my class from undergraduate school. I got my master's degree. I was one of those kind of people, as I gained success in my career field, deep inside I was empty. You know, I went into the darkness and have spent many years struggling with uh, crack cocaine addiction. I ended up at uh, the Union Gospel Mission on 527 of 2009. I had been homeless, and, uh, and at that time I was hopeless, and, and I had pretty much went through many cycles of, of trying to stop um, had basically lost everything. I've tried hypnosis, Scientology, narcotherapy. I was out of options. I was out of anything that I could do on my own power, realizing that I couldn't do it. It was uh, probably one of the most darkest moments in my life. One day I was sitting at the end of this table in the, in the lunch area, and this guy stepped up to me and asked really if he wanted to have a conversation. He sat down and we had a conversation. And that's when I met Marvin. First time I met with Marvin, he was guarded. By the third time, though, Marvin said, I want to show you something. And and, uh, I said, great. He brought out this big binder. And it was amazing to look through this binder. It was really his life. I, I think the one thing that I wanted to do was to let him see why I was like I was and the extent of anger that I had for myself. You know, I just committed then. I said, hey, let's, let's visit again next week when I see you. And, and we just started doing it on a, on a much more routine, regular basis and having those kind of conversations. I don't think he necessarily saw me as a homeless man or as a black man. Andy saw me as a human being who was suffering in darkness, who had potential. And one of the things that happened in me and Andy's conversation wasn't so much about where I was, it was much about what it is I'm going to do. How can I take what God has done for me and regain hope and purpose? His depth and consequently my depth of knowledge of who God is really grew and changed over the last couple years. This brokenness that I went through was my gift. It was not my curse. His spirit became more humble 
more peaceful. Um, he had a better sense of who he was as not, you know, Marvin Iglehart, um, you know, masters in mechanical engineering with all kinds of awards and all these accolades. He really did a great job of, of understanding who he was as a child of God. As me and Andy's relationship has evolved, you know, he's become a lifetime friend. He's a part of our family. I mean, my girls love him, my wife loves him, uh, my friends all know him. He's, he's part of our lives, so I don't make any distinction. He's not Marvin from UGM, he's Marvin Iglehart, my friend. When you're on those streets and no one comes looking anymore, that's when God sends that person in your life who picks up where they leave off. The crackheads are the people who are the lepers of this day. At some point, I became isolated, and I didn't want to be around other people. I didn't even want to face myself. But fellowshipping with someone, being in contact with other human beings who genuinely care, kindled within me a spirit of hope. And it opened up my eyes to see that God was giving me the opportunity to tell about His goodness. And that Christ, my Lord and Savior, was giving me the opportunity to share about how, how awful He can deliver me. And that I don't ever have to feel alone because I see people like me that I can go to them and tell them the story of hope, a story of deliverance. Good stuff, huh? It's all about relationship. And what you heard them say, what you heard Andy say was, man, I, I'm broken. Like, I understand grace, God pursuing and rescuing me. So I didn't view Marvin as a project. I viewed him as another guy who was broken and needed grace proclaimed and demonstrated. So it's not about resource dump. It's not about handing Marvin money. He didn't want money. He wanted somebody to look through his binder and, and, talk, and talk about what his life was like and what it could be like in the future. And so, man, I hope um, that you guys walk away with a sense of, man, how grace can change people. And if it can change you, it can change others in the materially poor and our community. All right. Benson's going to, we're going to do some fun table talk kind of stuff, and then we're going to come back and close it out. Sorry, I forgot to grab the mic. Um, you should have picked up, and if you didn't, we have some extras I can hand out to you. But we have some table talk for you to work on that connects with the homework, or part of the homework that Rick gave us last week. Uh, in it, um, to read specifically what he said, he said, your church's local missions pastor has asked you to develop a ministry for underprivileged children and their families at Christmas. So that could be here at Watermark. That could be a church you visited in the past. It could be your neighborhood church who just knows that you've been taking this class and said, hey, can you help us out? What would you recommend to him? So hopefully a bunch of you got to think this through this week. But in light of what we've talked about tonight, we wanted to give you the chance to sort of revisit that and revisit that in your group. And so I've put three questions there. You can read those questions. But I say, based on the principles just discussed and the ones you've read in When Helping Hurts, discuss these questions at your table. So we're going to give you about 10 minutes to do that, and then we're going to talk about what you have uh, kind of landed on. This is really a personal, like, feel free to kind of think this through personally, think through the questions, and then discuss what you've come up with. You don't have to come up with one table approach, but more what each of you individually, or if you're in a couple, or if you do want to do it as a group. That's fine too. So take about ten minutes, and then we'll talk about it. Does anybody need? Does anybody need extras on that that you didn't pick up? Okay. 
Okay. We'll go ahead and take a few minutes to just run through any particularly um, interesting or whatever responses really you want to give. Jeff's going to run the microphone. So um, hopefully, and I meant to say this when I was given instructions, hopefully nobody got too tacky in the, have you seen any other ministry outreach programs? We, like the guy mentioned earlier, we recognize that like we're learning this stuff too. And there's a wide variety and there are a lot of people who are ahead of Watermark or a lot of places, churches and organizations that are ahead of Watermark on this. And then there's others that hopefully we can have an impact on either personally or as a church as we have opportunity. Um, It's funny, you know, this book that you're reading when helping her, when we go to, you know, various conferences or other things, I mean, this thing is so well known and it's so exciting that these guys have had such an incredible ministry of really helping encapsulate what some people were figuring out all along, what others needed to be brought along in like me. And so it's just so neat that they've had such a widespread ministry just by writing one pretty simple, straightforward book. And so um, that's an exciting thing. So We'll hit, especially we'll hit your design here in a second, but anybody have any particular cases that just, uh, that just, you know, at your table were particularly interesting about other ministries or ways you've seen this done that maybe we can learn not to do it that way? Any, any particularly good examples come up? If not, that's great. Okay. Gabriel's got one. Hold on. Thanks. Um, there was um, a lady up in the South Dallas area. So our plan was to do stuff in our area and stuff. But our problem is that she doesn't know how to get the neighbors, I mean the people in the neighborhood, to mm-hmm. get them involved. Yeah. So when I met with her, I saw all the stuff that she's doing. There was stuff that she wanted to do, not the stuff that the neighborhood needs. That's why they're not getting involved. And I go, well, you know, you have all this great plan, but, but look at those guys. That's why they're not listening to you because you haven't spent time to find out exactly what are their needs. Yeah. And if you can put their needs into consideration, maybe they're going to come to your meeting. Maybe they're going to see you as interesting. That so is really good. That's yeah. Some, that's exactly at the heart of what we're talking about. And it's, and it's well-meaning people, but it is, like he said, it's often us helping in the ways we want to help rather than in the ways that are, are most needed or most wanted. Um, okay, so based on tonight's When Helping Earth's Principles, how would you design a Christmas ministry? And how does your ministry design tonight differ maybe from some of the ways you were thinking about it over the week? Anybody want to weigh in on one of those two questions? Yes, ma'am. Um, however, you might be able to get in touch with maybe a particular family. A um, couple ideas we had was either if it was several families doing like a potluck so that you could sit down and visit with them. And, and another idea was if we provided the food, could they provide the recipes and get together and cook oh, it wow. together? That's really cool. I like that. Yes, sir. Well, we, we kind of came to the conclusion that uh, to do it uh, the way we've seen described here is, is that we're not going to be able to strike 20 families. We're going to, our community group did it badly this last Christmas. 
and, and it, we're going to need to begin with the relationship. And, and it just may be that a a church may may be able to do do it well with two families mm-hmm. rather than badly with twenty families. Absolutely. That is a really great point. And again, that goes against what we most want to do, right? Like we want to hit volume and God says, I'm placing particular individuals or particular families in your path. And that may be my portion for you this year or this round or whatever. So one point that we had was, uh, we brought up that, you know, we know about Christmas about 364 days in advance. Yeah. So, uh, just to, maybe begin some of these these ideas were great i don't i don't actually think that we got a practical a- idea on the thing stayed pretty high level but if you begin to maybe apply these practical ideas you know maybe m- a month or two weeks in advance to really invite people into that process you could build that relationship and still be able to call it a Christ- christmas ministry Absolutely, yeah. Realize that you're headed toward this. Realize that Christmas, you may really feel a desire to help in that way, so start building relationships along the way. That's great. We talked about kind of doing something maybe along with the Advent calendar, something that goes past Christmas so that Mm. we are cultivating a relationship with those families. And then one really good point that I liked was maybe teaching them something that we take for granted so how to go and shop for healthy food on a budget or things like that something that keeps them coming back and and they can take and apply in their own lives absolutely that's great we didn't talk about all that i'm about to say but um (laughs) (laughs) but i was thinking uh, nanette had a good idea i thought about and i don't know if you'll agree with me or not because i'm just getting into all this so um to let let them ask you know that they would like to earn money and and for christmas gifts they would like to and us provide a way for them to earn money and then maybe our goodness our good deed back to them would be maybe to match what they've earned you know to help them you know to to build it up after they've after they've earned their money so and that would be the community they need that would be the um giving part of us that would be them holding hands with us you know kind of thing and anyway i don't know that's That's great yeah when we talk next week about some of our partners like that is a lot that is a major principle it's also a principle you can try out on your kids too i know jeff does when he talks about some of his parenting stuff at work it's not that you expect them always to go the whole way that we have been blessed to be a blessing but that you allow them to take part in that and that that connects with the dignity stuff that Jeff was talking about earlier. That's huge. No matter what your idea is, there is no bad idea to help somebody, but keeping their dignity intact. Mm-hmm. And I think just going into somebody's house and, and giving their children gifts is a slap in the face to them mm-hmm. because although they appreciate it, they're still, you're, you're giving joy to the children, but you're still, you know, I remember my mom. I mean, people used to give us gifts, and my mom would sit back and watch us open gifts, and her heart would be sad because that none of them were from her. So we had talked about different ways. And, and to me, it's, it's not just about that one day of Christmas, but it is a prolonged time. Like he said, we have 300 some odd days to sit there and say, hey, we we can get together and decide what we want to do to work with them. And I think if we can get out of that mindset of 
thinking that we're going to do something for them. Mm -hmm. Instead, say we can work with them and we can all do this together and help them to achieve their goal as well as ours and do it that way where they don't lose their dignity. And I think that's that's what my biggest thing growing up was, is that it was so embarrassing as a child, and it was embarrassing for me and hurtful for me to watch my mom. Um, so I think whatever a person's idea is, is to always remember that they, you know, there's a lot of families out there like, like we were. We were poor. We weren't drug addicts or anything. We were just poor. My mom had 10 kids. Yeah. She was by herself. So just uh, do it with dignity and allow them to make that choice on whether or not. And if the parents don't want to work, then say, hey, well, do you mind if your kids join in so they can maybe earn some money to, mm -hmm. to buy you something for Christmas? And I think that in turn shows the parents that, hey, and it teaches the kids don't just take money but work for it too because I think that's what causes kids to become adults. That's really great. Good job. Probably have time for one or two more. So it was really significant to me the not giving the gifts and you know putting the shame just like she just said but I thought if, if we could bring like uh, games then everyone like even the parents could participate in games and then, you know, if you're building that relationship, you're building that through playing games, and then you could bring the games back another time. You could have, like, this, you know, maybe game board ministry. That's really great. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I haven't heard that one. That's a good I'm a one big though. fan of games, too. Yeah. So, Anybody else? One last one. Gabriel's got one. Well, what I have, though, is not really a question, per se, but... At the same time, I mean, I've been to a situation where all the family needs sometimes is some Christmas meal. I mean, you know, I, sometimes, I, I mean, I don't have that time. Well, I won't say I don't have that time. This is their immediate need on Christmas Day. They're going to go hungry, and they wish someone can just bring them something. So if I were to think that, oh, no, I'm not going to give this family this because this is how they're going to feel or that, they're going to go hungry. So my question is, in that situation, what do I do? Do I just say, well, I'm not going to give them anything because I have to develop all this relationship because they're going to feel bad? See, yeah. I mean, that, that's the question we're asking about every day of the year. And I think we would say that the best giving does happen in the context of relationship. Uh, Jeff, what would you add to that? I mean, I have some thoughts. But. Yeah, so um, I would say... Uh, Man, provide provide the meal, and you know we we do provide we do extravaganza, which is an Easter event. We do uh, what what I'd say a lot of giving, but it's always in the context of relationships that are existing. And so, what I'd say is, man, look for a way to build relationship with that family. Invite them to your house to eat. You know, one of the things too. Some of you guys were mentioning just in, in your neighborhoods and connecting. We have a really practical thing. We it's the chuck wagon. Y'all familiar with the chuck wagon? that big silver monstrosity downstairs that's a big rolling grill. And um, when I came on staff, I was like, man, what, what are we going to do with that thing? But you know what? It is a phenomenal tool for you to use to have a block party to meet your neighbors and develop relationships. In fact, one of the things that our team is working on are more ways and more resources for you guys to do that. So we have a block party in a box that we're working on. Just, again, game night would be phenomenal. Just some things like that. So great. It's a great yeah. question. Well, I think Jeff's going to hit some of the questions that y'all put on your note cards, and then we're going to wrap up for tonight.
All right. So uh, I got a lot of, of similar questions around the guy on the corner. And so what I think we're going to do on that is you're going to get an email this week, and it will have a link to the brown bag that we did. So you can listen to it and keep it. You can circulate it in your community group. Um, Benson and I put a lot of time and thought into that, and we, answer, we answered a lot of those questions there. Um, just practical things that you can do to build relationship. What if you don't have time to build relationship? Uh, and so that, that was a few of the questions I got. Um, buying merchandise that is manufactured by people who are oppressed, is that seen as uh, oppressing the poor? How do we handle situations where that product can't be sourced some other way? Um, so, yes. And so and this involves asking questions beyond the surface questions and like where are those products sourced? Who makes those products? You hear about fair trade coffee. There's a lot of debate out there about around that kind of stuff. Um, but be aware and know where your products are coming from and who's making those. Are those sweatshops in India, things like that. And write letters. And let your voice be heard. Advocate. Again, as Isaiah 58 says, for the, for the voiceless. And so do the best you can. I know it's really hard to pick something up off the rack and know exactly where it was sourced. But, um, but ask these thoughtful questions. These are great. Uh, there's a guy on the corner. Um, um, the other questions we got were around the jobs program. And so you're going to hear more about the practical stuff uh, next week. But I'll tell you... Um, We'll send out some information about Faith at Work. Um, Andy Kerner, the gentleman that you saw in the video, now leads that for us. And, uh, and we're, we source candidates from our ministry partners, from our recovery ministry, uh, and we match them with Watermark employers uh, in a discipling, again, context. And so there's a sponsor. There's somebody that helps you know, that person move through that process. So one, to finish that story, uh, he, uh, Tim Slaughter, who's a, a watermark guy I met in Summit, um, said, hey, I need a guy that, that can handle building maintenance. And so Juan said, man, that's me. So he's over there, and he has since been promoted now. He's got a new cell phone and a new title, and he got a raise, and he's doing great. And, uh, and he's now being discipled. I've sort of transitioned the discipling from me to a group of watermark guys that meets in Bible study there in their building. Uh, and so that's phenomenal. And you know what? He couldn't be ex- more excited that half of his wages are garnished to provide child support for his special needs son who's in California. He loves that. Like, he's like, I love that they are garnishing my wa-. In fact, it's funny because Tim called me and goes, hey, you know, we've got to garnish his wages and this is what's going on. And, and so I was talking to Juan about that. He goes, man, I love it. I could be a dad, right? I mean, it's Romans 8 in action. It's freeing people to be all that God intended empowering them and pulling them out of slavery, whatever that slavery is, and again, recognizing the, the grace that's been shown and giving that grace in empowering ways. So anyway, um, uh, thank you for, for these cards. Um, we'll send information uh, about that. We'll even, I'll tell you what, I'll even send out the working document that will explains the whole concept, and it'll give you, I'll give you Andy's contact information if you want more information. Okay? Uh, lastly, your homework for next week, um, read, meditate, pray, God's heart for the poor passages. And so um, I got to do a little bit of spiritual discipline study recently for some training that we were doing. And, and just that whole idea of, man, it's so easy for me to do a word study and, on prayer and never pray, right? And so, you know, um, read those passages and let them sink in. Like, read them, pray them in. Um, live them out, as, as Todd says. Meditate. It's meditation. This is interesting. So 
Eastern meditation, Eastern thought. I lived in Japan for a year, and I lived in an area where it was all uh, a lot of uh, Buddhist and Shinto temples. And, you know, those guys would meditate. They would say the same phrases over and over and over. And their po- the point of, of that meditation was to empty your thoughts. The difference in Christian meditation is you're, you're inputting thoughts. The truth of God's word, what he believes about the poor, how can I, you know, um, impact, how does that impact in my hands? And so um, meditate on those and then pray them pray uh, because and, and, it's all about aligning, right? Aligning your heart with God's. Um, and then read when helping hurts. These are practical chapters. These are going to be less theoretical than what you've read. And so chapter eight uh, is all about the nuts and bolts of community engagement. A lot of the same stuff that we'll talk to you about what Watermark is doing and some other, other churches. Like Benson said, there's phenomenal churches doing phenomenal things. We learn from each other. And then chapter 11, which is all about partnerships. And so you'll learn a little bit about how um, that should be structured. So that is your homework. Um, so with that, listen, thank you guys. Grace, truth, mercy, justice, it's both and. So uh, as we remember that we are broken um, and spiritually poor, let's um, find ways to um, show that grace to those that are materially poor. All right? We'll hang out as long as you want to up here and talk. Thank you guys for coming. See you next week.